There's no shortage today of competing visions for freedom. People talk about freedom on a number of different levels. Freedom from systemic oppressive practices. And there are good things to listen to about that. Others, I seem, it seems that like they create ways to um, talk about victimization or oppression, drawing up dialectic uh, divisions amongst us. Some want freedom from overreaching and meddling policies. Mankind at large wants the freedom to live according to what is right in their own eyes. Man doesn't really learn based on what you see from history. Man thinks man has the solution. Can the kingdoms of men and women really stand in their own natural power and understanding of things? Are they not at some point doomed to fail because the people within those kingdoms become the actual problem themselves? Is there not the constant competing to get what we want and to live by what we call our truth today? You know, back during the time when Rome was in, in control and in domination over the world and over Jerusalem, during the times of Jesus, people longed for good news. In Jerusalem, a monster of a man named Herod the Great sat on the throne of Israel. The promised land itself had dwindled in size and importance to a small and despised province and advanced a vast and alien empire there among them. A pagan Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, presided over the local interest of a Gentile emperor, Augustus, in far-off Rome, and the emperor was demanding that divine honors be bestowed upon him. You could get canceled in that culture. It was all bad news for the Jewish people back then. It was a mystery to them. Were they really to exist like this? Is that the world they were going to have to live in until they died? Perhaps. Was there not their land to be free? Why did it feel like God had been so silent and distant so long? Was there to be no end to their suffering and humiliation? Back then as today, people need to know about a better king and a better kingdom. Let's take our Bibles and open to the Gospel of Mark. This morning, I'm going to do my best to preach the book as one sermon. It's an overview of the book of, God, of the Gospel of Mark. 16 chapters, 678 verses. The Gospel of Mark is a documentary of the life of Jesus Christ. It's the fastest moving of the four Gospels. We see that with often the use of the word immediately. It appears approximately 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. It's a proclamation and an apologetic work that hints at the redemptive meaning of the events that are recorded. The book's authorship appears to be anonymous. However, according to an early church father and associate of, of the Apostle John, it's attributed to John Mark, a missionary companion of Paul and Barnabas, and later of Peter. And that's really important. 
He mentions Peter more than any of the, of the other Gospels. And you can see that nothing happens in which Peter is not present. Can't help but see, think at times, well, Peter really wanted you to know how foolish he and the disciples could be. The entire Gospel of Mark is almost certainly the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. It has that sort of eyewitness feel to it as you read. Dated around AD 65. Scholar thinks it was first again written for the readership of the local churches there in Rome. It presents the reader with privileged information, unavailable to the characters in the story other than Jesus himself. The prologue briefly lets the readers in on what otherwise uh, secrets that will remain hidden in various degrees to all the characters in the drama that follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It contains what Mark knows and believes about Jesus as he allows his readers a fleeting glimpse into, into Jesus' identity and mission with a heavenly vantage point. You can think about that. Now, some critics accuse the gospel writers of trying to dress up the truth and present Jesus as someone who immediately impressed everyone with the idea that he was God, but that's not how the gospels were written. Jesus' own family, as you know from Mark's gospel, thought he was crazy and tried to have him committed. Mark honestly recounts the fact that his gospel is popular exactly because of such indicators and historic authenticity. There's an honesty to Mark's gospel, as there is in the other gospel accounts that give it more weight, that this is actually true in a historical account. He punctuates his narrative with several explicit references to the reasons for Jesus' coming. He came to destroy the power of demons, to preach the good news, that God's kingdom was near, to call sinners and not the righteous, and to die as a ransom for many. These statements, these purpose statements in Mark's gospel Help, those, help us comprehend that he was the long-awaited Messiah, bringing in the reign of God and to die for sinners. I mean, look at this account. Look at his life. See and hear the, uh, in the heavenly vision, the heavenly voice. This is my son. Listen, learn to hear these words addressed uh, as you read the gospel to your, read the word and hear it, God addressing you. Let him charge you and mold you and make you somebody new, the person God desires you to be. Discover in this story of Mark's gospel the, the normally hidden, heavenly dimension of God's world. Mark nowhere else tells us uh, that Jesus said to the people at large when he took the initiative in giving a public proclamation, what he was what he does, he, he, he gives us the usually brief responses of Jesus in particular questions. So let me just read a section from Mark to you this morning that helps summarize these bigger truths. I'm going to read you from Mark chapter 10. Will you flip over with me to Mark chapter 10? And you'll remember this from months ago when we were here. This is the third time. And final time in Mark's gospel, where Jesus sits them down and squares up with the disciples and tells them what he must do in going to the cross and what it actually means to be a disciple. Three times. This is the third time. 
And it's important to focus in here so you can see how much this connects with the rest of the book. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Hear now God's holy word. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Notice the great shift in tone deafness. Now, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand, my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them? But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Amen. Jesus condenses down so much of his identity his person and work. Son of man is a loaded theological term, and yet also we see the service of our Savior packed in and how instructive it is to those who would be his disciples. Jesus Christ is the Savior and King we desperately need as condemned sinners. Therefore, let us by God's grace repent and believe. This book confronts us with historical, the historical Christ, not some myth. If you're looking for religion of what feel, feels good, then Jesus is not for you. He provides real comfort, but he will not leave you comfortable in sin. Jesus will unsettle you in Mark's gospel. He will cause you to think about where you are with God. He will force you to decide if he's crazy or if he's actually who he said he was. Jesus will cause many to see how they are not genuine and committed as they think they are as they engage him in Mark's gospel. The book of Mark goes against the grain that we are enlightened as humans in our natural state. If you have a high view of mankind's brilliance but can't see how deaf and unresponsive we are to God, this book will seem really odd to you. This book does not portray us as seeing, hearing, or believing the truth, but in fact it shows us that we are dull, deaf, blind, and hardened against the truth in our natural state. If you know yourself as in need, this book then is for you, if you are in need of God. But if you don't see your need for God, then this book will just bounce off of you. This book shows us that we, are, we as a church are not to, uh, up against mere frustrations, but against real spiritual darkness. 
It destroys the idea that we will have victory separate from prayer. This book shows us also that there is um, and always will only be one true hero of history, one and only one hero of the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the bravest, the most humble, the most serving, most truthful, most glorious, most powerful, sacrificial, and, most, and he is the victorious one. Jesus is the only one worthy of the promises made in the Old Testament as the true and faithful son. This book will cause those who by grace have ears to hear to exalt Jesus. You read Mark, you can't help but say, praise Jesus. It will cause our, your hearts to leap for Jesus. You will delight in Jesus if you've been born again. In his victory over dark forces, you'll be like, yes, I knew Jesus would take him down. You'll rejoice in his authoritative teaching when the slimy ones come around and try to trick him and he just reinforces the truth and leaves them stunned. You'll, you'll rejoice as he confronts the false ones, setting things right. You'll be overcome with the grace that he had in Gethsemane as he was in anguish. And, and you will be overcome with grief as you see his suffering. You will wait with anticipation to see as you keep reading. Is he going to do what he said he'd do? He promised to be raised from the dead. As you read about the cross, you'll have many emotions. But you, if you are a true Christian this morning, you'll glory in the cross. That's a strange thing to the world that we would glory in the cross. But we have nothing to boast in ourselves. That's why we glory in the cross. You will sing of victory and the love that Christ gave you at the cross as a result of start studying Mark's gospel. There's so much more I could say, and I need to keep moving, so let's keep moving. Here's the central point. There is no good news unless we have Jesus Christ. There is no good news unless we have Jesus Christ. Let us, by grace, turn to Jesus. Let us, by grace, turn to Jesus. I wish, you know, people like good news. I like good news, right? Don't you? I don't want the bad report. We know there are bad reports coming all the time. Often we say, I want the bad news first, you know. But for our souls, there is absolutely zero good news except Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other Savior. There's only Jesus, and he's wonderful. Point number one, Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. Well, how so, Pastor Garrett? Well, Mark focuses a lot on his identity to preach to us that Jesus is the good news that we all desperately need in this world. By seeing who he is, we realize that he can indeed redeem us from the cost of our sins. The wages, the cost of our sin is death. Jesus came to redeem us, rescue us from God's wrath, and restore us to uh, the life that God intended, that he designed, through, and he was the one who will bring in the new heavens and new earth. But look at Mark chapter 1 again. Let's start all the way back at the beginning, and you can flip along as we climb through the gospel of Mark together this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you, he will prepare your way a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. 
So Mark brings us right into the storyline, doesn't he, of the Old Testament. Great news for those who can see the truth this morning. Jesus has arrived to fulfill the Old Testament promises, which are quoted here at the beginning. For Mark, Jesus came to fulfill the expectations expressed in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, that God will one day visit and restore his people and unite nations under this promised one, this king. Jesus proclaimed the reign of God uh, and how it anticipated um, and I, how it was anticipated in Isaiah's prophecy. And like Isaiah's servant of the Lord, he died an atoning death for God's people. To put it in a nutshell, Mark sees Jesus as the physician who heals the sick because he's the servant who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. He wants you to start off from the beginning. Like, I'm going to connect you with Isaiah. I'm going to connect you with the Old Testament. Yes, John the Baptist uh, would fulfill the, the uh, precursor, the one who would be the Elijah who would preach before Jesus, but Jesus still is the ultimate trailblazer. Jesus is the final messenger. He is the uh, prophet, priest, and king. He's the word of God, the word made flesh. He is our savior and our suffering savior. First subpoint: He is the promised and anointed one. He is the promised and anointed one. I'm going to lose this. It's getting sweaty up here. All right. There I go, thinking it was fall weather, and it really wasn't yet. First subpoint: He's the promised and anointed one. And I'm going to focus on chapters one through three, the story of the gospel account of Jesus is good news that comes from God. And in light of that, uh, the usage of Isaiah, the good news from God is concerned with salvation. What do you mean by salvation, Pastor Garrett? The well-being in the truest and fullest sense of human beings. His name, Jesus, literally means God is salvation or God saves. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Christ, Jesus, is the anointed one appointed to save us from our sins and from God's wrath. Remember the story of the Bible is salvation from God, by God. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who added to himself full human nature, body and soul, was anointed by heaven to be our king and redeemer. The one, John said, would baptize his people, in Mark's account here, in the Holy Spirit, was baptized in the Spirit himself, anointed for the task ahead of him. He laid aside his glory, put on human weakness and frailty, and perfectly submitted himself to the Father in the Spirit. Jesus does what he does and says what he says under the guidance and power of the Spirit, who is now permanently with him in this, as you read Mark's account. His works and words only further prove that he is the one that promised in the Old Testament. Who can deliver us from the chains of our sinful flesh and the grip of the evil one? The one in Mark chapter 1 was tempted and tested like we are, but without sin as he faced the evil one in the wilderness. Jesus is the only human who was and is sinless. He is qualified to represent us, his people, before God. He had no sin of his own, but he was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' authority is on display, and you see he's truly anointed, just like the Old Testament predicted. 
He forms a new Israel in himself when he calls the twelve. And this represents that God's people will no longer be identified by the old covenant markers, but by the one, the old covenant promised, the son, the true son, the seed of Abraham. And being one of God's true Israel of the heart means being in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes people, his people, fishers of men. And that means evangelists to the nations. God is forming his people in Christ. And so Mark chapter 1 through 3, he immediately is a threat to the world and to the powers of darkness. Uh, he has authority over demons. You can just look along with me and through chapter 1 going into chapter 2. He has authority over nature as he heals people as well. Who is this one who terrifies demons? Jesus. Church, who is the one who defines our forever family as opposed to our fleeting earthly families? Jesus does. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Next subpoint: he is the son of God. He is the son of God. Mark chapters 4 through 8 all the way through verse 21 of chapter 8 is where I'm going to focus now, covering large chunks here. The title Son of God not only points to Jesus' deity, which the text goes above and beyond to make sure you know that he's doing things that only God can do and saying things that only God has the authority to say. But this title, Son of God, not only points to his deity um, as the eternal equal uh, one, second person of the Trinity, but it points to his unique humanity as well. He's not only the covenant Lord, he's the covenant servant. And in his, in his humanity, he fulfills what the failed sons, the representative sons in the Old Testament, failed to do. He is the true and greater son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The Bible reveals that in his incarnation, Jesus is both superior to the angels and yet as God, inferior to angels as, a, as, as human. Superior as God, but when he put on his humanity, he put on humility. And Mark wants us to see, though, how authoritative this one is. Jesus is the, look at chapter 4. Look at Mark chapter 4. He's the sower, and our hearts are the soils. In Mark chapter 4, the question is, do we have the soil that can receive the word? Are we fruitful listeners of the word of God? It's a good place to just see how you respond to God's word. Is your life marked by obedience to Christ? Or is it marked by something else choking it out all the time or in rebellion against it? Or is it like, do you remember a time when you were like, I was really into Jesus, but that really fell off. Check out the soils in Mark chapter 4. We are to sow, though, friends, as we look at this and keep reading, we are to sow the seeds of the gospel of Christ and it will grow according to God's providence. But nevertheless, we need to see what kind of soil we have. The kingdom of God begins looking weak, as Jesus taught. It starts off with an offensive message by a poor carpenter from nowhere in Nazareth. People from Najimoy think they live out in the country. They haven't seen anything until they've seen Nazareth. Um, but when it's all over, it's going to turn into a mighty tree that God's going to reveal. It looks like a mustard seed, but that thing's going to, it's going to be revealed as a mighty, mighty, fruitful uh, tree. And Jesus will, while being a, hum a humble human being, reveals his holy power as his word calms the winds and seas in chapter 4. So just you can't, you see again, the Son of God, creation responds to him in chapter 4. And they were terrified of him. In chapter 5, Jesus overcomes other, another hopeless man who is consumed by darkness, consumed by demons. People wanted to be rid of this man and keep him away from them. He heals that man, sets him free. He, Jesus heals the woman 
who touched him in a crowd, who was bleeding, and then raised a dead girl from, from, the, from death by his mighty power. He shows again and again that when his word is given, his summons cannot be resisted if he so chooses. That's why we pray for, that's why we pray before we ever evangelize. We pray for God to do the work we cannot do. I cannot work on your heart, but God can do it. We ask God to help the preaching because it's powerless in the flesh. We pray for the call of the Spirit to accompany us. And as we share the gospel with others, that God would be merciful, that he would break up that stony heart and put in a heart of flesh that could be, uh, uh, to put in good soil that could receive the word. In chapter 6, Jesus' rejection, you can flip with me to chapter 6, is, is paired beside John the Baptist's murder prepares the reader that Jesus' fate will be worse and that following Jesus can be very dangerous. And chapter 6 showcases again that Jesus is greater than Moses and he, as, he is God as he feeds the thousands, walks on the water as only God can do according to the Old Testament, specifically in Job. And he shows that he's authoritative over the law of Moses. That's right. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he also declared all foods clean, if we know that from Mark chapter 7. Who has the authority to say that the law had run its course in separating and, se and identifying God's people? Who had that authority? Jesus had that authority. Who is the one in chapter 7 that even the Gentiles, those who were not part of the ethnic community of Israel, approached and received grace? Jesus is the one who works that. That conversation with the woman and about the dogs is, is amazing. Who is the one who does all things well? Teaching, healing, cleansing, overpowering, and forbearing with the disciples' dullness is Jesus in chapter 8. Who is the one who warns us plainly about the mindset of the world in chapter 8, who is antagonistic towards God? Jesus warned us about that kind of mindset. You know, I was praying for it in the service this morning, but it's amazing how many churches and pastors in our own land do not read their Bibles because if they did, they would stop pursuing what's called seeker-sensitive uh, philosophy of ministry. That ministry caters to the world. Jesus said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. That ministry caters to the world and to, to, and to kind of get them to, to better accept Christianity. Friends, the gospel is nonsense to the world. It's not desired or received by the world. Jesus said to beware of that. He didn't say cater to it. He didn't say try to tickle it and pet it. He said beware. The world is never offended by man-made religion. You ever notice that? You can go on a college campus today and preach any kind of world religion and the vast majority will be just fine. You start preaching Christ, watch what happens. I mean, that seems like a natural observation, but it's often ignored. The world is never offended by man-made religion and living according to whatever makes them feel happy. That's their message. That's their religion. That's the paganism of the age. The world's highest aim is the healthy, harmonious, joyous development of their own existing human faculties, their eyes, their ears, their tastes. That's what I mean by that. And I learned that from Machen. They reject with hostility that they are somehow sinners. They reject that outright. I am not a sinner. I make mistakes, but what you're talking about is really offensive. It's oppressive. And silly so-called churches try to water down the offense of the Bible. They water down the idea that we are, we are uh, they water down the idea that we're corrupt in sin throughout our whole being. 
unbelievers of the world and bad churches are optimistic about human nature. And they don't see themselves as sinners and rebels against God. Jesus pushes directly against that. Christianity, though, is the religion of the broken heart. And Jesus shows that again and again as God's son, as the one who's truly sinless, the one who's truly anointed, the one who truly is perfect and holy. We are none that. We need Jesus. We are not good on our own. The report is not going well. We are all sinners. We've all transgressed against the Lord. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. He, though, is the true sanctifier of God's people, not rituals. He is the pure lamb of God who could take away your sins and my sins. What are you going to do with your sins, friends? Hope that they just get ignored, that they will somehow be less than your good deeds. You've missed the message of the Bible. Your sins have put you at enmity with God. You stand in them. You stand condemned already. Come to Christ. Look at the invitational nature. One of my favorite things about Mark's gospel is how invitational the Son of God is to to those who are unclean, to the poor and needy, to children. He's able to touch the unclean without becoming defiled because he's truly pure and holy. He has the power to do it. And one of the great constant mistakes in Mark's gospel is to think Jesus is just like everyone else. He touched the unclean. He did that. He's not like us. Pharisees and Sadducees, you got him wrong. He's not like you and me. He's the son of God. He's truly man, but he's also the anointed one with all power and authority. This commences to me. That's why I want to just commend him, proclaim him, invite you to come to him, come to Christ. We cannot approach God, but God can approach us through Jesus. And that's what he's done to save us from our defilement and sin. It's not just our outward, friends. It's it's from within, as Jesus said. He said, listen to me, all of you, and understand. In Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within and out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. We are so prone to look on the outward, but God sees the heart. He sees how wretched we are inwardly. He knows how fake we can be. Only the Son of God could point that out. Beloved, we sin because we are sinners. It's natural for us to be prideful, covetous, lustful, bitter, greedy, and grumblers. It it springs from within us because we, unlike Jesus, are born sinners. We can't approach God in that. He's holy, and neither do we desire to to approach Him unless we wear His, we hear, look, look at this, His invitation to come and be saved from our sins. So as we look at Mark's gospel, the Son of God has the power to heal. We all need healing. We don't just need, some of us feel it in the body, but we also need it in the soul. We need to be healed by Christ, cleansed by Christ, forgiven in Christ. And he does this in our souls when the Spirit of God awakens us to our need for Jesus. We then stop putting our trust in ourselves and start putting our trust in Christ. We cry out for mercy because we trust that Jesus died on that cross as the only acceptable payment for our sins. 
And we know this because Jesus was raised from the dead. He is risen. He is not here. Amen. Church, Mark helps us to keep, to keep, to fuel an exalted view of Jesus. No one here can claim today, my view of Jesus is maxed out. My view of Jesus is just overexalted. Nobody here can say that. It just keeps growing. You think in eternity we'll have reached a, a ceiling on an exalted view of Jesus? No, he'll just keep becoming more glorious and more wonderful in glory. Mark wants to help us right now to keep growing in an exalted view of Jesus. What's the practical thing of that, Garrett? Uh, that's a lot of theology. What's the, give me some nuts and bolts. Well, here you go. An exalted view of Jesus will stir you to conviction and praise. How practical is it? You need to feast on Jesus. It will help you grow in your conviction and your praise. An exalted view of Jesus will remind you to point all the glory to him. Jesus leaves no room for boasting whatsoever. An exalted view of Jesus will cause you easily to share him with others. If you keep growing in your ex exalted view of Jesus, you can't help but share him. When you are filling up your mind on Jesus and Mark's gospel, guess what? Your thoughts and words begin to be influenced. An exalted view of Jesus will cause the local church to remember whom we represent. Church, we are not a some social club. We are an embassy, an assembly in his name, submitting to his word, observing his ordinances, installing his prescribed officers. We are his ambassadors who come together in him to affirm testimonies and to exercise discipline and to stand together in the faith. We lock arms. A high view of Jesus' works will increase your faith as you pray. I don't know about you guys, but every day, doubt is like this cousin who comes to visit that I don't want to come see me. You ever have that relative in your life? Oh, they're back. Don't be that relative. But doubt seems to be that friend that comes to me and ready to sit with me and with anxiety every day. Oh, this is going to go bad. I'm already 10 steps ahead. How terrible it's going to be. There's just, why bother? And just, I just go and go and snowballs. And then I pick up God's word. I'm like, oh, yeah. With man, it is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And I'm reminded of Jesus' power. A high view of his works will increase your faith as you pray. When things seem so dire and too difficult, we look to the one who has all the power over darkness, all the power over disease, and power over death. It's Jesus. A high view of Jesus will cause you to cry out to him for help instead of reaching for self-help. You start with Jesus. That's number one. Let's go to point two. There's no good news unless we have Jesus Christ. Let us by grace turn to Jesus. Number two, Jesus is to be followed as Lord. Jesus is to be followed as Lord. I'm going to cover chapter 8 through 16 now, all right? I'm not going to scratch every itch. You know that. But we're going to have fun thinking about Jesus. Amen. Jesus is to be followed as Lord. First sub-point, we need grace more than we, need, uh, more than we know to follow him. We need grace more than we know to follow him. So if you flip over to chapter 8, starting in verse 23, and we'll move forward. The kingdom's arrival is a supernatural work of God. Human beings cannot bring in the kingdom. Amen? Well, that's not brought about by us, okay? The kingdom of God in Mark refers especially to God's saving rule. Kingdom of God, his saving rule to the fulfillment of his saving promises. The victorious reign of Christ over sin has broken in. It has been inaugurated 
and it's waiting for its consummation. And without Jesus, sinners have no hope because we are under the reign of sin and death. We are under the sway of the devil. We can no more free ourselves than Israel could free herself from Egypt, Babylon, or the Persians. It has to come by the Lord's power and his decree. The coming of the kingdom, in other words, means that the promise of victory over the serpent, the promise of worldwide blessing made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of a kingdom that would never end made to David, the promise of a new covenant, a new exodus, a new creation are, are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The righteous will finally be vindicated and the wicked will be punished. So in the second part of chapter 8, we see Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, at least here partially, a future deliverance from sin. He gives the man partial sight to make a point. Remember that? I see men as walking, walking as trees. Remember that? Mark uses this healing of blindness to serve as a, as a paradigm for the spiritual healing of the disciples' sight which comes gradually and with difficulty. The man's sight provides the perfect picture of the disciples. Only when Jesus touches him again can he see perfectly there in verse 25. So it's in that context, look at the progression of Peter. He confesses the truth about Jesus partially, but real clarity of who Jesus is will not come until after the resurrection. In the ironic twist, though, in that same movement, Blind man, partially partial sight, Peter's partial confession, even, even there, it's by the grace of God, according to Matthew. In that same context, we read about blind Bartimaeus, who sees Jesus in truth in chapter 10. So in chapter 8, 9, and 10, he reveals to the disciples what it means to follow him. They have to accept him, that he is the servant of the Lord and the son of man at the same time. He is God's promised universal king. That's what it means, son of man. Promised, divine, universal king, son of man. That's bound up in that title. He is also the suffering servant who will suffer for his people's sins and be raised. He wants them to see that Messiah, son of David, son of man, son of God, suffering servant, are all the same person. Prophet, priest, king that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. He's the one who came not for the healthy, but for the sick, the poor, and needy. And Jesus is not for those wanting a mere improvement over the current age. Peter, get behind me, Satan, where Rome is vanquished, but for those who long for a city whose builder and maker is God. And in the midst of Jesus predicting his suffering and resurrection, he tells them what it means to follow him. Chapter 10, look at chapter 10. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? Look at chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Somehow, they, these weren't important enough political touches for Jesus, these children. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. That is a precious verse. You know, over the years, I've heard my wife use that with our children when they are worried or they are concerned. And I'm sitting there thinking, I need to hear that. <laughs> Let the children come to me. Children, can you hear that? You worried about your salvation? You worried about your soul? Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Come to me. Put your trust in him. He says, Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Mm. You have to become like a child. That means poor and needy. What other religious leader in human history has been concerned with children like this? What other leader has been so concerned with the vulnerable? Show me in the ancient text. I can't find it. Jesus was, and he called his followers to demonstrate concern, not only for the strong and healthy, but for the young, old, weak, and vulnerable. Do you take time to look after them, Christian? Engage members of the church that way? Jesus called us to, follow, uh, to demonstrate concern for the young, old, weak, and vulnerable. Mark Dever recounted that in a recent interview, Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas speculated that within a hundred years, Christians may be known as those odd people who didn't kill their children or their elderly. As Christians, we do not love like this because of our personal uh, uh, preferences toward loving. Rather, we see that Jesus loved in this way and we follow him. Jesus showed grace like this. We need grace. And Jesus showed love in this way and taught us that we all need to come to him like helpless children. So if you come to Jesus with a view that you are pretty good, you'll miss him. You have to come to him completely empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling, asking for grace and mercy. And if you do that, you'll be, you can be, you'll be saved. He will not turn you away. In chapter 10, Jesus confronts the self-righteous young ruler. Look at chapter 10. Who made an idol of his possessions. See, he came boasting about his keeping of the commandments. But Jesus knew exactly where to, put, where to hit him. He had an idol called money and possessions. Remember the guy was a good man. And even in the eyes of the disciples, the disciples weren't all put by him at all. I have kept them all. What? And when Jesus tells him to... to to sell it all and come follow him. They're perplexed. They're thinking, man, if this guy can't get in, who, who can get into the kingdom of God? What chance do I have? And looking at them, verse 27, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. There's grace. There's grace for sinners to be brought into the kingdom. We must cry out for it. We must ask God to change our hearts. We must ask God to change other people's hearts. We cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, calls me to treasure you. That brings me to this next subpoint. We need to count the cost to follow him. We need to count the cost to follow him. Jesus said in chapter 8, what will it benefit someone if they gain the whole world and lose their life, their soul? And Peter in chapter 10 says, look, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus reminds him that it will be worth it in the end. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is telling Peter it's going to be worth it. 
you count the cost. Jesus says, we've left everything. Jesus reminds him it's going to be worth it in the end. Some of you know what it's like to be cut off from a family member or a friend because you've decided to, by grace, follow Jesus Christ. You hang in there. You hang on to Christ's words. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Jesus is the chief model as it pertains to greatness. Whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man, the divine, eternal, universal king title, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I had to blow their mind right there. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. We have to count the cost. Our Savior certainly did. Next subpoint: we need to see the overall greatness of Jesus. We need to see the overall greatness of Jesus. And so uh, uh, squeezed in there densely is chapters 11 through 16. Him entering Jerusalem all the way to his death, his burial, resurrection, commission, and ascension. Chapter 11, you just open your Bible there. The king enters in fulfillment of prophecy, finds Jerusalem, though, in sin. Jerusalem, she is the cursed and doomed fig tree and her old system will never bounce back. He's pronounced a curse upon them in the current and the, what they are doing and their current operations. Her ministry of the temple and witness as a city has been finally stripped according to Jesus' pronouncement of judgment. They are no longer his, his important city. Jesus will build his city of his people. They will be a city on a hill. It will be his light, his witnesses. In chapter 12, Jesus identifies himself as the servant and the son in a parable. Just as we do not misinterpret the upcoming event. So in case you say, I see the son of man, son of David. Where does he identify himself as a servant? Look at chapter 12. He is the servant. This time the son. Remember he gives that parable. This time they will listen to my son. But they take up arms against him and kill him. And so judgment awaits uh, Jerusalem. Jesus' death and Tony work, though, was the plan of God. Jesus unveils in that, in his death, the providence of God will not be overridden. It's actually part of his plan. God will bring salvation. The stone that the builders rejected, Jerusalem, has become the cornerstone. What? Of a greater temple, of a greater building, of a greater household, made of living stones, Christ being the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes, as he quotes the Old Testament there. In chapter 13, Jesus prepares the disciples that doom is coming to the city. The abomination of old will happen again in the sacking of the city. The gospel will go forward, though, in a long period of tribulation. There's coming an hour, and no man knows the hour, when the Son of Man will come with the clouds and with the, with the glory of, of God and bring final judgment to those who have taken up arms against him. In chapter 14, we see what happens. The betrayal begins to happen as, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, as he replaces the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper. Betrayal is happening, and it's time to pray and seek the Lord, uh, seek the Father. And so Jesus then models this in Gethsemane. You know how we deal with anxiety. Jesus gave us the template to pray, to seek God's help. Trial before the Sanhedrin then happens. 
is an abomination and its violation of several laws, namely bearing false witness and a conspiracy to murder, as they're calling him a, a blasphemer. In chapter 15 and 16 are the details of the crucifixion and the resurrection, including his appearing, his commissioning, and his ascension. You know, discipleship is not merely a certain code of conduct for the disciples. Being a disciple of Jesus means joining the people of God in God's creation, coming under his eternal covenant and kingly rule, and living in dependence on God rather than independence from him. Why? Because we see the greatness of Jesus. Discipleship in Mark flows from dependence upon the master's captivating and exemplary person. From his formative teaching and from his atoning work on the cross where he took on our sin debt. Where he was made guilty in our place as those sins were laid on him. As he bore God's wrath on the cross. And on that third day, rose just as he said he would do. So, beloved, when we consider that there is his kingdom like that, we have to think through ours. Am I about his kingdom or my own? It makes the difference between my will or his will, doesn't it? So much I think of our prayers often really sounds like my will be done on earth and my will be done on he in heaven. When we think about his kingdom, we surrender as Jesus told us. It makes a difference between how I see, quote, my life versus the life he gave me, the steward. Every one of us have a, have a date on us, don't we? We have a, we just, we, our life is such a vapor. I mean, really, how much more time do we have to be faithful to the Lord, to tell those closest around us about Christ? to encourage our church family members, to witness to the loss, to exalt Christ like we, uh, in a unique way like we are right now. We will never know liberation separate from Christ. We will only know the chains of sin. There is no king, there is no salvation, there is no one like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would display your kingship in the, life of the, in the life of the members of this church. May we have the aroma of Christ. Keep us fixed on you. Help us to, uh, Lord, come back to Mark's gospel again and again just to delight in you one more time so we be transformed through the renewing of our minds from your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.